This episode is brought to you in part by Harvest House Publishers and the new book, The Good Gift of Weakness. Discover how human weakness not only allows God's strength to shine, but it was all by His design. The Good Gift of Weakness is now available wherever books are sold. Like you said, as preachers, we are called to proclaim the gospel, even in the darkest times. But I don't think we should ever be just eager to jump in, particularly with answers, like you said, to those why questions. Because I find that those rational kinds of responses we might want to bring forth don't actually speak the word that people need to hear uh, when they're at a graveside or at a hospital bed or, or, or whatnot. This is Kevin Miller with Monday Morning Preacher, and today I'm sitting in for Matt Woodley, and we are going to look at one of the ultimate questions that you and I face or ever will face as preachers, and that is this, what do we say about suffering? How do we speak to people's pain in a meaningful way when it often feels to them in that moment as if God has abandoned them? them? And so... Uh, to help us with this, I have invited today my friend and fellow preacher, Dr. Emily McGowan. Welcome, Emily. Thank you. It's good to be here. Well, Emily teaches theology at, at Wheaton College, and she's also an Anglican priest, and she and I are in the same church, so I get the joy of hearing Emily preach live. I know you have much going on in life. <laughs> Tell us a little bit about some of the things that fill your days. Well, you said the big one. I teach theology at Wheaton College. We just finished our semester, so um, that takes up most of my time preparing. Yay! Yay! <laughs> I also write. I'm working on a couple of, of books right now. You mentioned I'm a priest. I also serve our diocese, assisting the bishop with things that he might need, that he might need a theologian to do. We also have three kids, and uh, they keep us very busy as well. So, and I'm married. I'm married to a preacher too. So, well, I think your family's amazing and and love your kids. What holds all that together for you? What holds it together? <laughs> <laughs> oh, maybe I'm making an, an errant assumption. <laughs> <laughs> well, you know, it's funny. It makes me think about when I when my kids were really little. I was doing my PhD program, and a professor once asked me in the hallway, "How do you keep everything balanced?" And I said, you know, honestly, I spend a lot of time on the floor. <laughs> <laughs> you know, what holds it together is the grace of God. I know that sounds cliche, but that's really the truth. Yeah. Somehow it's it's all able to work and, and the Spirit's holding us together. So, Yeah, wonderful. Well, Emily, I've been looking forward to talking with you because I wanted somebody I could talk to about this. When I sensed God was calling me to serve the church as a pastor and preacher many years ago now, one thing that held me back was this particular fear I had, and that I knew that someday, being a pastor, I would have to say, stand at the graveside of an infant. And I would be called upon in that moment to say something of comfort and maybe uh, have something when the inevitable why questions came from parishioners. And I truly did not know what I, w I would say. So this kind of speechlessness in the face of great suffering. Is that just me? I mean, how do, how do, we, <laughs> how do we deal with this as, as preachers and pastors? I definitely don't think it's just you. I've definitely, I've experienced that as well. And, and I think the Bible gives us 
uh, room to to see ourselves there in that respect. I mean, Job's friends, right? The first thing that they do is they sit with him. Um, so silence in the face of suffering is not um, is not an indefensible reaction. It's we should be sort of humbled into quietness and not be quick to speak. I don't think mm. when we encounter suffering. Now, that's not mm-hmm. to say we aren't called upon to speak a word, right? Yeah. Like you said, as preachers, we are called to proclaim the gospel, even in the darkest times. But I don't think we should ever be just eager to jump in, particularly with answers, like you said, to those why questions. Because I find that those rational kinds of responses we might want to bring forth don't actually speak the word that people need to hear uh, when they're at a graveside or at a hospital bed or whatnot. Yeah, that's so well said. You know, sometimes I'll hear... Christians say, not usually preachers, but more um, uh, parishioners say something like, well, you know, yes, she died so tragically young, but there was a nurse that was treating her leukemia, and that nurse is now a believer, so isn't that sort of, you know, and and they make it seem like that is the answer as to why this child suffered uh, a blood cancer. I've never found that satisfying myself, and I, I don't understand that calculus. No, it, it's not a good calculus. <laughs> I don't think we should make that kind of calculus. Um, I've had a similar thing said to me with the death of my mother-in-law at 46 years old. And mm. the response was, well, you never know who was brought to the Lord as a result. And in my head, I didn't say okay. this out loud, but in my head I thought, isn't God good enough and sovereign enough to bring someone to the Lord without killing my mother-in-law uh, to be part of that? And, and so the, the answer is not, well, God did this, so this. I think that kind of calculation we are not called to do. I think it's an unfaithful, uh, it's an unfaithful response. Certainly, God does bring good out of evil. Thanks be to God. It's God's character to do that. Right. But that doesn't mean that God either permits or causes something, something that we would consider evil, in order for some good to come of it. In fact, I think we ought never to say that God causes evil for the sake of some greater good. Hmm. But that's a whole separate conversation. Yeah, well, we may need to wait in, but we'll see. (laughs) (laughs) You know, let me maybe get at it this way. I know that as a theology prof, you have the privilege of working with some very bright you know, students from across the country, ones who generally have been raised in Bible teaching churches. And yet I know from following you on Facebook that sometimes they offer up some misunderstandings about God or evil and suffering. What are some of the big biggest misunderstandings that you might hear from a student? Yeah, I think the one that I just alluded to that I probably should start with is that that God is the ultimate origin of evil. I'm really particular about my language there because I'm I'm taking on a very particular claim, which is that the source of evil, like ultimately, is God, and I think that's really problematic when we're talking about the character of God. God is good. God is goodness itself, and so to try to say that God is the ultimate origin of evil, I think, is really problematic. That's not the God revealed in Christ. That's not the God revealed in Scripture. The truth is, I don't think we really know what the ultimate origin of evil is. There's all sorts of theological, philosophical theories as to what that is. But I don't believe that scripture really gives us a straight answer. We know God is bringing good out of evil, and we know that God has addressed the problem of evil in Christ. 
through his death, burial, resurrection, and eventual return. God will have ultimate victory over evil. But evil's origin, I don't think we have an answer to that. And and how does that come out from students? Or do they say things like, well, that plane crash must be caused by God because God is sovereign? Or what? what yes. how does it come out? Yeah, it's, it's precisely that sort of, I think, oversimplified way of talking about events in the world. Okay. Um, so if I believe that God is providentially governing the universe and some evil thing happens within that universe, therefore God is the direct cause of that thing that happened. And there are some theologies that reason about providence in that way. And I think that ultimately they inadvertently do violence to God's character by mm-hmm. suggesting that God is the direct cause of some evil. So I think that's that's probably the big one. I work really hard to try to convince students that God is good. In God's very essence, God is good. And therefore, that means that God is always already opposed to evil and mm-hmm. triumphing over it, not orchestrating it for some sort of mysterious end. Again, mm-hmm. God is providential. He's, he's governing the world. But God, the direct cause of evil, I think, is is a no-go for me. In your own times of suffering, what have you found helpful? I mean, and how does that shape your preaching? So I've already said, I don't think that rational answers are helpful. And that's borne out from my own experience. Mm-hmm. Um, we've endured a number of, of losses, including my, my mother-in-law, my brother-in-law, and, and a number of others. And in those moments of suffering, rational responses, what we call theodicy, mm-hmm. just didn't really do a whole lot. I remember thinking to myself, even if Jesus himself were to appear in this moment and tell me, here are the rational reasons why I've permitted this thing to take place, it would not have comforted me because it it wouldn't have been sufficient because the rational explanation didn't actually minister to my to my soul. So from my perspective, the things that have helped are praying the Psalms of Lament, actually mm-hmm. crying out to God. And giving voice to my suffering, giving voice to my pain. Someone ministering to me with their presence rather than their words, right? Just being willing to be there and help with small things, big things, but not offer explanations. That's a big deal. I think that is such a great word for us as pastors and preachers. You know, three different times now I have preached at the funeral of an infant And I think that what I've said in those moments, I I mean, I've prepared with anguish in my heart and much care, and yet I don't think that is what really has made the difference. It's really the presence. It's walking that long, lonely path out to where the tiny white casket is laid. And I, I make it a rule, as many pastors do, I would hope, that I will not leave that graveyard until the last person has left. I remember one time, it was like January, it was kind of slushy, and the mom of this infant child, daughter, fell to her knees in the mud, mm-hmm. laid her arms over that casket, and just began sobbing these giant heaves, and her husband, who was in his own grief, but really didn't even know what to do to comfort his wife, and a lot of the rest of the family had already left. Mm-hmm. I just stayed there quietly uh, with them. For what seemed like a very long time, I don't actually know what the actual clock showed. More than anything I said that day, being there with them was really, it was important to me, as you can hear, 
uh, but I hope and think it was important to them. I think having someone bear witness to your suffering to affirm that that it's real, that it matters, and that it matters to the church and it matters to God is just really profound. And I think your your physical presence, even more than than your words, uh, communicates that in that moment. Yeah. Yeah. If you were uh, going to preach a sermon series on suffering, Emily, what Bible texts or books or themes would you mm-hmm. want to draw upon? Yeah, that's a great question. I mean, I don't think you can really talk about suffering in the Bible without talking about Job, right? Um, mm-hmm. Uh, what's interesting, of course, about Job is that that we bring all of our modern questions about evil to the book of Job, and it doesn't really have any interest in answering those questions. <laughs> no. <laughs> um, God's answer is, who are you to question? <laughs> right, right. Um, so, so, I mean, but we do have to deal with Job because that's one of the first figures I think people think of. Sure. But it also occurs to me that it can be helpful to engage with the, the stories of, of biblical figures who've endured tremendous suffering. Mm-hmm. I'm thinking of Abraham, for instance, who through most of his life was dealing with the denial of the, the deepest desire of his heart, which was <sighs> for an heir, for a son. Yeah. I'm thinking of Mary of Bethany, Mary and Martha and the loss of, of Lazarus. And then I think you need to deal sometimes with figures like Samson, whose suffering was real, but the cause of his own, caused by his own foolishness. Yeah. Right? Yeah. Not all not all suffering. A lot of suffering is not caused by your own foolishness, but sometimes it is. And so it seems to me we want to bring the variety of different ways that the people of God have suffered and faced that suffering with God's help and companionship. Mm-hmm. So that's probably the first thing that, that comes to mind. Yeah, I'm thinking of like uh, Naomi in the book of Ruth. Right. Who says, yeah, you can start calling me bitter because <laughs> that's my life. Right. Hmm. Right. And yet God is present and active and at work in the lives of all of these people who faced suffering and and come through it. And we can see God's faithful promises to them, hmm. even in the case of someone like Samson, whose story is so, so sad and tragic. Yeah. You know, earlier you, you said something about we know definitively that God is dealing with evil through the death, resurrection, ascension and return of Christ. And I for me at a funeral... I've got to have some verses mm-hmm. from John 11 or, or you know, 1 Corinthians 15 or something that right. just reassure my heart that the resurrection is real. It was bodily. It was witnessed. Mm-hmm. I love that line from Peter that says, us witnesses who ate and drank with him mm-hmm. <laughs> after he rose from the dead. We had meals with this guy. It's real. I just need that going into a funeral as a preacher. And I find those my greatest, uh, you know, solace. Yeah, the, the um, ethicist Stanley Harawas, he says about the problem of evil that the early church didn't really have a theodicy. What they had was the declaration that Christ would return. Mm. And and that was the, in addition to the resurrection, that was the hope that God in Christ is going to set all these things right. We don't see it yet. We only see it in part, right? We see it through a, a glass dimly, but that Christ is coming again. And that declaration, paired with the bodily resurrection, is the promise we hold on to, because we, we really believe that that's true. That's the, the bedrock of our faith there. And to me, at least, that's those are the only kinds of certain things you can proclaim in those moments because cliches and you know uh, pat answers don't don't help. 
Now, among other texts outside the Bible, yeah. uh, books or, or other resources, which ones uh, would you recommend to a pastor or preacher wanting to dig more into suffering and the top the topic of, and especially that would be helpful for preaching? Well, there's two that immediately come to mind. The first is Nicholas Wolterstorff's book, Lament for a Son. Hmm. It's been in print for a long time for a reason. It's a beautiful it's, it's it's his lament over the death of his son, but it contains really profound theological insights that are not sugar-coated and, and not prettied up. You know, they're not tied with a bow and made simple. Yeah. The other one that comes to mind is this little book by David Bentley Hart called The Doors of the Sea. Now, it's a more straightforwardly theological work, so it takes mm-hmm. a little more effort to get through. But I think he, more than anyone else, has convinced me of the need to proclaim God's opposition to evil in the story of Christ's death, resurrection, and ascension. And I I think he does a a good job with that. And then the last one that I I think of is Tish Harrison Warren's recent book, Prayer in the Night. Yeah, I've just started that. It's really excellent and Mm -hmm. uh, very deep biblically and theologically, but it's shot through with her own story. And I think models really well how to speak wisely and pastorally about evil without lapsing into cliches and pat answers. Yeah, one of the insights that I loved from Tish, which thank you for, you know, Tish for helping me see this was that we sort of practice our way into faith. We don't faith our way into faith. We, we, um, we, we keep showing up. And one of the things that I've often found pastorally in working with the grieving is their, what would I call it, their sensory God receptors seem to break under the weight of grief. And they feel like, God, I needed you most right now. And yet I, I can't sense you. I can't experience you in the ways that I used to. Uh, the Bible is dry as dust right now, and prayer is, you know, empty. And I just tell them, you know what? That's normal to be expected. Just show up to church. Just come and receive communion. It's this tangible bodily thing outside of you that then enters you. And just like practice, just come and practice with us again. And and eventually your heart and your soul will begin to heal. And you'll find it all coming together again for you. There's something we, I think, in those moments where we are in great grief, where practice is our friend. Yes, I, I completely agree. Uh, for me, um, when we went through a time of, of, of real suffering most recently, it was somehow it was the creed, saying the creed every week that mm. began to, to, to bring healing and then eventually reawaken those God receptors to sense God's presence again. I just found every week when I would stand up and just say, we believe with the rest mm. of the church that even in that moment, if I was doubting, I could say, but I'm, I'm part of this larger group. We really, we do believe this. Right. And so for that brief little segment, you know, whatever that is, 30 seconds or whatever that it takes to say the creed, I felt faith again. Yeah. And then it would fade away, but I had it for that moment. Yeah, I couldn't agree more that continuing to practice is, and and that's what actually the church can do. Rather than asking, trying to answer the question, why did this happen, which we don't have an answer to, mm-hmm. I think we ask, how can we help people maintain faith in the face yeah. of evil and suffering? Well, we know how to do that. We have the tradition of the church to teach us how to do that. Being present. Mm-hmm practicing together those rhythms of Christian life. Mm -hmm. Wow, that is a gift. What a resource. 
I know that, uh, you know, when Karen and I went through a very painful uh, miscarriage and the doctors came in and basically said, that's it for you all in terms of children, I devoured books on apologetics trying to get the answer, trying to work it out on my own. And no surprise, based on what you've just shared with us, not helpful, uh, you know, really. It just, I was trading in one set of questions for another. Right. And uh, it was, I think it was ultimately just staying in the, in the game, staying in the church and eventually finding my faith returning. It makes me think of, um, there's this passage in Mark's gospel where uh, I think it's in chapter 10. It's one of these passing references in the narrative where Jesus has turned toward Jerusalem and, and the disciples all know what that means, that something, mm-hmm. something bad is going to happen. Mm-hmm. But it says that the disciples followed him. Um, they were afraid, but they continued to follow him. Mm-hmm. They were fearful and they continued to follow I remember coming across that when my mother-in-law died and thinking to myself, that's, that's precisely how I feel. Like I'm terrified of, of what I don't know about God and what I don't know about God's providence in this moment. And yet I'm going to continue to follow. I'm going to continue putting one foot in front of the other, seeking as much as possible to stay in the footsteps of Jesus. And eventually things do begin to start to make sense again, but it takes, it takes time. Yeah. Yeah. So well said, Emily. Uh, This has been Dr. Emily McGowan, who teaches theology at Wheaton College. She's also an ordained minister and a great preacher. Encourage you to check her out on online. And this has been uh, Kevin Miller with Monday Morning Preacher, brought to you by PreachingToday.com.